0: Hi, my name is Richard Staines, Account Director at Optimum Strategic Communications. Today's podcast is in recognition of Rare Disease Day, and we are going to be talking about the progress that's been made in rare diseases over the past few years and looking at the challenges ahead. With me are Jean-Philippe Combol, CEO of Vivid Therapeutics, Juicy de Conza, Head of Research at Iungtura, Ahmed Moussa, CEO of Vical Pharma, and Miguel Villapareo, CEO of Splice Bio. Can you provide an overview of the current landscape of rare diseases in 2024? How has it evolved compared with previous years?
1: I would say, first of all, there's been some major indications which have been approved and marketed in 2023. So I think um, hemophilia A, B, DMD, there's been also some work on um, dermatology indications. So for me, it's clearly demonstrating some, uh, I would say, fundamentals uh, which remain strong in discovery, development, clinical validation of the underlying science, and that's very important because now we're looking at the commercial success, which will be a critical step in 24. Um, in the face of challenging capital markets, environment for biotech, clearly we've been having some uh, significant strategic realignment in the pipeline of different company reorganizations. There's been a tough year of eight count reduction uh, to require the extended runway with existing capital. And while the number of companies that folded increased, uh, we also observed some large pharma defocusing on rare uh, gene therapy companies willingness to invest in rare disease and gene therapy and some others doing the other way around with some very interesting investment in cns um ophthalmology otology and some systemic indication cardiac interplay. i think one of the questions company can ask is can there still be a rare disease focused company without gene therapy approach and um, in the meantime i would say we've seen some uh, Significant reduction in willingness to invest in ultra often indications, uh, despite some bespoke therapy approach and specific financing. Also, we could be, and we'll talk probably later about being cautiously optimistic about the future of uh, financing in 2024.
2: So maybe to follow up on, on some of the things that uh, Jean-Philippe said, I think, yeah, 2023, I mean, as, as, as Jean-Philippe mentioned, you know, there's been several uh, significant approvals of important uh, rare diseases. I think in 2023, following a trend that we've seen over the last uh, decade, the FDA, basically, of all the drugs they've approved, a little bit more than half of those have been for rare diseases. So I think this is, you know, something important uh, for the field that highlights, you know, that this remains a, a, an interesting space for drug development in part because many of these diseases are of genetic origin. So I think then the, the basic biology behind these diseases, you can do a, a clear translation there. And there's always also been some incentives over the years in developing treatments for rare diseases. So I think these incentives have worked and that's resulted in you know more treatments being developed. Uh, that being said, there's still, you know, I think it's only roughly 5% of known diseases have approved treatments. So there's still a long way to go to develop more treatments for patients with rare diseases.
3: There are certainly between different rare diseases, you know, some commonalities and some uh, differences in terms of both current landscape and kind of evolution. Uh, you know, first maybe to focus in on an area where um, kind of I, as as kind of uh, at Vicor Pharma and we and the team there are focused is in this disease called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. It's a rare uh, respiratory disease that that involves a, a, a buildup of uh, the fibrosis in the lung that unfortunately eventually chokes off uh, the. ability of those who suffer from it to breathe. But in in the case of a disease like IPF, it's actually um, a bit of a limited uh, development pipeline, unfortunately, and I think that's both driven in part by the fact that it is a rarer disease. Uh, But also one of the key components is that it's a disease that's tough to address and tough to treat and uh, a number of companies have tried and have unfortunately had setbacks uh, phase 2 or phase 3 trials that have been unsuccessful and so that type of uh, dynamic can lead to some trepidation you know both on the part of pharmaceutical companies uh, that are larger as well as investors that support phar- smaller pharmaceutical companies you know uh, you know from uh, from from kind of diving in just because when you have these these unexpected failures. And if there's a number of them, you know, people become a little bit worried about can you appropriately kind of predict your chances of, of, of success to have an impact on this type of disease. So while that's kind of, you know, I would say uh, an an unfortunate dynamic, at the same time, there's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm for IPF. You know, certainly the patient advocacy groups are excited and very supportive to, you know, continue to have companies invest in this space. And, you know, as sitting in in the place of one of the companies that's trying to work strongly in this area, we're also excited to kind of continue to push, you know, to certainly push forward. Uh, And I think that type of of dynamic in a disease like IPF, where you kind of have these moments and you have a number of drugs in the pipeline, and then a smaller level, if there have been some setbacks, can actually be common to other uh, rare diseases. And I would say certainly, depending on the particulars of the rare disease, having a smaller kind of pipeline of drugs and development is unfortunately one of the potential features of these types of diseases as well.
4: There is a lot happening, I, I guess, in general, but one of the things that I think is very powerful, uh, it's the repositioning of existing targets uh, for uh, rare disease and even for uh, ultra-rare disease. I think this is very interesting for rare disease because we, with the repositioning of drug, we, we already know the PKPD profile of certain drug and, and it's easier to then uh, go for this higher met uh, clinical need patient. And one example is pediatric delta inhibitors that have been um, approved for hematological malignancies. We as a company, we are testing it in metastatic uveal melanoma, which is a rare uh, type of cancer. But uh, there is also another great example from a farming group, which is, a, is in license a piatrici delta inhibitor from Novartis, which is leniolisib, that has seen FDA approval for APDS patient, which is an ultra rare disease with very few family affected that is characterized by an activation of pietriche delta uh, that leads to immunodeficiency and often these patients succumb because of uh, lack of mounting uh, immunity against pathogens. Uh, and so linolysis is best proven to work in this patient and it's really, uh, I think, a great example of uh, target repositioning.
0: Are there any breakthrough therapies or treatment modalities
1: that show significant potential for addressing specific rare diseases. I mean, clearly 2023 was a landmark for uh, the genome editing space with the first CRISPR, including Bluebird Bio as well, um, different technology, but uh, this approval really uh, opened the space for more future and better confidence, but also long-term acquisition of data. Um, There's also the year of confirming the proven AV gene therapy, uh, which have been through critical steps, from long-term durability in, in hemophilia, looking for DMD, and I guess we hope to see in, um, in 24 some data in otology, in ophthalmology, cardiac, and clearly this additional in vivo editing data uh, will arise because we've been talking about CRISPR, but that's a, an in vitro uh, gene edition. But in vivo editing data will arise with Intelia, Verve, and that will be a critical step uh, for efficacy and safety uh, in 24 and more confidence in the technology?
2: Yeah, so I think that, you know, again, in, in gene therapy, uh, you know, there's been some highlights uh, beyond the CRISPR space. Last year, I think Sarepta's uh, conditional approval of, of their mini dystrophin to treat Duchenne, it's an important highlight. And obviously, you know, the different hemophilia treatments that were approved also uh, recently. I think outside gene therapy per se, we have, you know, also antisense oligonucleotides being developed, for example, for amyotropic lateral sclerosis. Uh, with 12 and in terms of you know new technologies that are now you know getting into the clinic I like to highlight also because it's somewhat related to some of the work that we do at Splice Bio diseases uh, like hearing loss caused by mutations by autofirline that also Jean-Philippe was referring to uh, uh, you know there's clinical trials ongoing by decibel and also by a to treat these uh, you know hearing loss uh, diseases and they have also you know preliminary data with Still very few patients, but showing like the great potential that gene therapy has. You know, uh, gene therapy has suffered sometimes some hiccups, but I think those trials and, and others show that, you know, when it works, it, it really works and it can make a, a big impact on the life of patients.
3: Every rare disease is a little bit different and has its own kind of challenges and its own um, opportunities. I would say, you know, we've certainly seen some really nice uh, approvals for some of the rare genetic diseases, recent approvals for, uh, for example, sickle cell anemia, which is quite excellent for patients, as well as for beta thalathemia, uh, another uh, kind of rare uh, genetic disease. I think, you know, one of the features that those types of rare diseases have is there's an understanding of the genetic basis for disease. Uh, in the case of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, and there's a whole category of rare diseases that also fit into this bucket, you know, idiopathic means there's not a full understanding of the causes of disease, and there tends to be an understanding that it's a mix of genetic and environmental factors without having a specific signature. So I would say that when you're looking at things like CRISPR-based therapies or gene kind of therapies, those are actually quite nice when you have a rare disease that has uh, an understanding of the genetic basis of disease. Unfortunately, in in the bucket of rare diseases like IPF where there isn't yet that understanding, or it might be you know sufficiently driven by environmental factors that it can't be addressed through uh, simply maybe some sort of genetic solution, means that you have to kind of look beyond some of these gene therapies, which are, of course, quite exciting and quite impactful for the rare kind of genetic cause diseases.
1: I think for genomics and precision medicine, it's clear that there's been some uh real outcomes coming through this uh, CRISPR approval, uh, the in vivo gene editing coming, so maybe so that that's really coming through. I would say for AI, there's potentially some uh, significant interest. Also, i personally, I would need to understand more practical examples because today it's more complex to use AI. It depends how you actually want to use it for health data, I would say globally speaking. So I'm not sure today it's something which can help to get registration. It's more as part of other things, but uh, let's say if we focus on real-world evidence or real-world data we want to assemble, there's a quality issue that we're still having some in real-world data because uh, we know there's some existing issues in real-world databases and quality of data set. It could be wrong diagnosis, it could be not all relevant data are significantly correct, and that may clearly, I would say, limit its usefulness because you may have some misinterpretation or overinterpretation. So AI has certainly a place, but I, I don't know how it's going to be helpful today really fine-tuning these two registration perspectives or phase three follow-up perspectives. Yeah, I think
2: that in the specific case of AI, again, I think it might be still too soon to tell know, how much is it going to contribute? Obviously, I think many of these technologies that you mentioned, what it's clear is that they, in principle, they should allow us to do more with less time. So in principle, that's like a good idea. I think one clear example, and we already have the data for it's like the whole uh, genome sequencing uh, field, which I think, again, for rare diseases, it's particularly critical to be able to quickly identify, you know, when a patient has one of those diseases and, you know, through whole genome sequencing, we have been able to reduce the time it takes to analyze the whole genome by like an order of magnitude. So now we are much faster at being able to diagnose those diseases. So again, this notion of, you know, being able to do more and faster. So I think it's obviously going to contribute now how AI is going to develop there. I'm no expert. So, but to me, it's a little too soon to tell.
4: I still think that probably in the future what is going to uh, be always more and more uh, used and tested is the combination of uh, gene therapy with cell therapy and again for some type of uh, rare cancer it there has been uh, now very uh, I mean different approval of CAR T which is indeed ex vivo gene therapy so its uh, uh, manufacturing of uh, cell um, uh, ex vivo with material the genetic material that then uh, uh, modify these cells to be more active, against, uh, in this case, uh, some rare type of blood cancer. But this has also been applied for genetic rare disease. Uh, there has been, for example, in 2022, the approval of uh, BET cell which uh, is basically the um, ex vivo gene therapy of hematopoietic cells for patients affected by uh, beta-thalassemia. So it's really the combination of applying gene therapy to cell therapy that I think uh, um, has seen uh, several approvals also in the last decades, but I think it can be uh, further improved uh, via a novel modality of um, incorporating the genetic material. Normally, uh, what is used is the lentiviral vector or the noviral vector, but with the COVID vaccination, we see that this is possible also with nanoparticles, and I think this is going to be really improving, probably, this transfer and therefore also the cost of manufacturing for this type of therapy that have been really powerful for treating some of the rare diseases.
3: There's so much potential, you know, to use these types of artificial intelligence, machine learning-based approaches uh, to both uh, un- better understand and better treat disease. You know, one one good example I can give in the case of our rare disease is that, you know, kind of everyone who's diagnosed with uh, this idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis actually gets a high-resolution CT scan usually associated with diagnosis. Uh, and then, you know, even when you're testing drugs for this disease, you can take further scans. And so actually one thing that we're doing at Vicor is we're working with a group that has uh, AI and machine learning-based tools to analyze those scans to better understand our patients. And actually, one fascinating thing is we have an ongoing phase 2A trial, and we've looked at the CT scans of the individual patients, and we've developed what you could call a signature uh, for those who benefit most from our therapy. So actually starting to build an understanding of those patients who are most likely to have you know, kind of the best possible response to your treatment. And these types of tools can be excellent to ultimately identify the patients that you'd want to include in your further clinical trials, the patients who you know should have access to your drug in the future. So they're really quite wonderful uh, for that purpose, but they can also help you have uh, more objective metrics for understanding you know, kind of whether or not your drug is working at all. So I think that over time, we're also going to see some of these AI-based image analysis biomarkers gain some, you know, kind of validation and maybe even in the eyes of the regulators, uh, be useful tools to support approval of new therapies.
0: How are patient-centric approaches influencing the development and accessibility of treatments for rare diseases?
1: All of these stakeholders are essential to the ecosystem, I would say. Uh, However, it's a complex system which requires uh, a lot of uh, interaction between the the research, the translation for pharmaceutical company, patient advocacy groups are essential to understand why would we go to this disease? What could we do for this disease? And I think for me, it's uh, all of this is essential. What I you generally call the three Ps, the patient, the physicians, and the patients. Um, I mean, if you don't get financing, you're not going to get anything involved. So everybody needs to be financed from research to patient advocacy groups, they also need support, and uh, if you can find this rare disease research and treatment, that's essential, Uh, however, we also need to understand that ultra-rare disease is causing more issues on how we're going to tackle this, and there's more work on foundation, philanthropic approach, or bespoke gene therapy from the NIH, which is a very uh, inspiring approach so collaboration essentially would be very long to shape this but uh they it's a triangle i would say of a, a virtual cycle and a very significantly dependent at some point
2: yes um so I, I i agree i mean again the collaboration with all the stakeholders in the space it's it's really critical uh, the researchers the the patient advocacy groups and the companies financing developing of these therapies, it's a complicated thing. So that also requires that you know these different players we need to find ways to adequately work together. I think in particularly the the patient advocacy groups, I think are very helpful to put the companies like us in contact with the with the patients, help us enroll and, and recruit for clinical trials, understand the best endpoints and particularly understand how we can really try to make the life of patients better. And you know how we define endpoints that can have a real impact on the lives of patients, which at the end, it's also what the payers that will eventually need to figure out a way to pay for these treatments, uh, it's also relevant for them. So I think working closely with these associations early on, it's very important
3: that's something that's certainly top of mind you know at Vicor we really do try to start with the uh, patient perspective in mind and so one example that I'll give of that is in designing our phase 2b study that we're planning to initiate in the first half of this year for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis we actually spent a great deal of time with both patient advocacy groups uh, in, in different countries as well as actually patients directly and we had a panel of patients who we talked to about the trial that we were seeking to conduct and actually worked with them to uh, design a study that was both acceptable to the regulators and something that clinicians would be excited to participate, you know, in in terms of building kind of that clinical support, but actually first and foremost, having something that a patient would be excited, you know, to participate in. And, you know, for us that, you know, also meant then tailoring the number of visits, what happens during those visits, what information we give to patients or potential patients who might be interested in this study about what the study is, and how we can update them over time on how the study is uh, progressing as well. So we really thought carefully about each and every one of those things in kind of designing our phase 2B clinical study. And hopefully part of, you know, kind of the benefits of that, in addition to having something that patients are excited to participate in, then is a more rapid enrollment of a clinical study, which we think is, of course, then a benefit to the whole patient group and not just even those who participate in the clinical study, because uh, hopefully at that point you can bring a therapy to market. Sooner, if the data are able to uh, support it, you know. One other thing that we're also thinking carefully about, uh, you know, at Vicor is how do we address the patient from the most holistic perspective? So in addition to developing a molecular therapy, you know, associated with, uh, you know, treating uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, we've actually built a digital therapy uh, to deal with some of the psychological burdens of the disease, uh, anxiety associated with pulmonary therapy. So this actually digital therapy, recently we had a positive, you know, clinical trial result where we're able to have a significant impact on anxiety associated with pulmonary fibrosis. And we think that building these types of tools and seeking to make them available for patients is really a wonderful you know, way uh, to address things from a patient-centric approach.
0: How are collaborations between researchers, pharmaceutical companies, and patient advocacy groups changing the landscape of rare disease research and treatment?
1: If we take an example of what we've done for Wilson, we've been talking to all of the Wolfson Disease Association group in the U.S., and then there's the French, the Spanish, the Danish, the German association. There is key strategic initiatives we need to make about science, about medical education, about gene therapy. What is it to what it can do or does for me as an individual? And I think we need to have, of course, this patient advocacy group, advisory committee before we start the phase three, but I think we can learn from what has been done in depending on the unmet medical needs, if you take hemophilia, or if you take DMD, if you have no rescue treatment, no existing treatment, you will test it and eventually you'll be looking for the next step. For, is that the real momentum for me to take these treatments versus a future one, depending on the technology. But when you look at other existing, there is some existing treatment, they are far from being satisfactory, Then the patient, if you learn from hemophilia, can have multiple questions. It's, what is really gene therapy? Why should I consider gene therapy? Can someone clearly explain me the benefit-risk? Am I eligible to gene therapy? How could I know that I'm eligible? What are the treatment phase and the dynamics? I mean, how how that will impact my personal life and my agenda for some time, it's because I will need to go for screening, for treatment, for follow-up, and it's very long. I've learned that it's 10 years follow-up or even 15 years follow-up. And once I'm treated, how I can be sure there's a full durability of efficacy and the sustainability and is it working accordingly? For how long will I be followed? And also, will I have defined medical visits? So all of these educational components for me are critical at the stage of including, treating, following patients. And all this has to be explained to the patient because once it's committing to something in gene therapy, it's committing for a very long time. And all of this can be gained when we start thinking about treating patient phase 1, 2, but also for phase 3. And all the things we do in phase 3 will impact the follow-up and the commercial phase. So that what's really the patient-centric, is really the, the receptiveness as well of uh, all of this educational, all of this registrational trial design and eventually accelerated approval with long-term commitment. So for me, that's the key things we need to ask for patient, physicians, eventually for sure payer. but there's a very long path on being able to educate the patients before they can commit for long-term. Can I ask a follow-up? <laughs> <laughs>
2: because in what you were saying, uh, Jean-Philippe, do you think patient advocacy groups need to play a role there in like educating I don't know if that's the best word, but like uh, helping patients understand what implies to get enrolled in a, in a gene therapy clinical trial, or do you think
1: that's more physicians and the companies? Pharma company, whatever we say, patients will still have adapt on what are our final philosophical approach to patients directly. We still have some patient association in some countries I won't name, who are very reluctant to talk to pharma company in the same vein I think it's very important that we educate physicians, because some physicians outside of the KOL and the specialists, they need some education on gene therapy to say the right words, to say the right tempo, to say the right outcomes, get the real things, get the common language. Uh, and then we need to educate patients, because I, from my experience, all of these patients will talk to other patients. The voice is patient to patient. Of course, it will be patient to KOL, patient to physician. But the patient-to-patient is so much more interactive than we can be. So if you don't have the right elements, or if you start having negative or positive benefit risk conversation, they are the one who can actually, at the end of the day, make the final step in convincing or putting a break on their approach to any kind of gene therapy. And you can see that in hemophilia, where there is some uh, patient association who may say, Oh, maybe you should wait for the next innovation. There's another treatment coming. You know, it's like the continuous improvement, but educating patients is essential because they are the family and the one going to treat. It's not only its patients and its caregiver and the family, and they cross-talk to each other at some point. So we need to have the right language. Our language sometimes is too much science, too much complex. We try to put some essential, easy words but we still have to define precisely what is a benefit risk. And that's something very essential.
4: Giving myself within my field and so the P3K, I think there has been a great example with the approval of Alpelisib, which is a 3 P3K-alpha inhibitor for PROS uh, patients. So PROS is, uh, uh, is actually a P3K-alpha related overgrowth spectrum syndrome that is a group of genetic disorders caused by the same p k alpha mutation that occurs in P3K-alpha mutant cancer. So Alpelisib has been developed by Novartis for pediatric alpha mutant in fact breast cancer and that's in approval recently and uh, what happened is that the Canod research lab in Paris uh, started to explore the therapeutic potential of uh, uh, pediatric alpha inhibitor in PROS and uh, Novartis provided Canod's group with the molecule and it tested first in mouse model and in two patients of uh, PROS and afterwards it received a special uh, approval from the French regulatory authorities to extend this study to 17 more pros patients. And this now has uh, led to a great publication, but especially to the approval of Alpelisib for uh, for this patient as well. And I think this is a great example of uh, collaboration between academic groups and pharmaceutical companies that has led to a successful approval for this patient. I was pretty impressed when I participated to a Pietri K conference in uh, Barcelona and there uh, there were of course academic uh, researchers there were pharmaceutical companies that were sharing data on you know pediatric K associated biology so what happened when Pietri K is mutated in both rare disease and rare cancer but then within this conference there were also patients patients with APDS so the pietri Delta syndrome, patient with PROS disease, and there were patient with P10 syndrome. So P10 is the phosphorite Pietri K, so it's uh, highly associated to the same biology. And there was a final session where patients also participated to the conference by really telling their experience. And I was really impressed by, you know, hearing a 16-year-old PDS patient that got uh, leniolisib, this improved his life. And this, I think it's really important for us as researchers to experience this, to, to have more connection with this community. And I, and I think the pi 3 network, it's a great example on, on how to engage all together. So the researcher, the companies and the patient and the patient advocacy group together to
3: move forward faster.
0: What are the challenges of developing rare disease therapies and getting them to market?
3: There are certainly a number of headwinds and they range, you know, kind of right from the category of things that we kind of touched a little bit on in the last question, which is how do you effectively, you know, kind of enroll clinical studies? Because when you have a rare disease, uh, it tends to be um, more challenging to be able to identify those patients who are both eligible and interested in participating in a clinical study. So that's certainly one of the headwinds or challenges. And I think it goes all the way up to then kind of the market access side. And again, I think this differs rare disease to rare disease, but, you know, being able to make sure that you can offer up, you know, kind of a therapy that's attractive from a commercial perspective is important to, you know, to ultimately having it be accessible. So making sure you can fit into the appropriate uh, frameworks for that.
2: I think in in rare diseases, there's a a few, you know, very well known challenges. I think we could list, you know, uh, issues, the difficulty in in recruiting uh, because, you know, we are talking about small populations that are heterogeneous. And often, you know, quite uh, widely uh, spread and distributed. Another typical challenge that w- we face is the definition of uh, endpoints. Uh, you know, for some of these diseases, you know, again, due to the small populations that are being affected, there's been limited number of studies that can establish, you know, solid endpoints to monitor disease progression that then are also uh, accepted uh, by regulators. And then I would mention also, obviously, kind of some of regulatory challenges on how you translate all these kind of scientific or technical uh, difficulties in designing clinical trials that allow us to, you know, get data to support that the drugs we're developing are having an effect on the patients. Maybe I would just indicate also a kind of a, a recent, more recent challenge that came from the new Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., which is particularly for small molecules, it's modifying the exclusivity duration for small molecules. And that obviously can create now a new challenge in potentially removing some of the incentives that drug developers had to develop treatments for rare diseases. That's, I would say, not great news and an additional challenge to the ones that we already
1: had. I would add that basically there's also some... uh design and surrogate endpoints, which are very challenging. So one of the question in regulatory could be the, I would say, the receptiveness to alternative registrational trials, design, accelerated approval path, using surrogate biomarker, which could be expression-based endpoints uh, with natural history, it could be even real-world data from specific registry. However, we know there's some considerable challenges in, with potential error and biases which are coming from these databases, and and agencies are very, very uh, demanding on the quality of databases. So um, basically, accelerated approval is a very important pass, but we also need to have our own commitment for confirming this uh, acceleration is valuable. Do you think it will be easier
0: or harder for rare disease biotechs to secure finance in 2024?
3: I'm optimistic this year about the overall environment for uh, the financing of biotechnology companies in 2024. I think that there's a broad, you know, kind of level of optimism, but we'll have to see how the year, the year ultimately unfolds. And I think that, you know, rare diseases also certainly fit within that category. There have been a number of uh, approvals, as we kind of touched on, of kind of rare disease-based therapies. And then also there have been, um, you know, some significant kind of, right, m or other types of deal-making around rare disease-based therapies as well. And I think this can propel uh, some optimism in the market I'm kind of in the in the same shoes as my peers, but, you know, kind of one thing that I think is quite important for me when I'm trying to build the support amongst the investor community, you know, for these types of diseases, really presenting a vision uh, for how you think you can kind of, in some unique way, address the patient population, you know, relative to the standard of care, the emerging standard of care, or how you can complement. So, you know, kind of a, a strong vision for how you fit into the broader framework of how this particular, you know, rare disease that you might be working in, you know, I think that's quite an important piece of the puzzle. And I think that vision can go a long way to generating enthusiasm amongst investors for your company and for your potential therapies as well.
2: I hope it's going to be easier than in 2023. I was at JP Morgan earlier this year. Uh, I mean, John Philip was also there. I, I think, I mean, I detected a little bit more optimism than last year. And I think that's obviously a good sign. I think in the last few months, we've also seen some like big acquisitions by, you know, pharma acquiring, you know, significant deals in the M&A front. And that's obviously always good for investors because it, it generates obviously a positive environment of the outcome of the investments they've done. And this trend on m and I think it's expected to continue in 2024. So I'm, let's say, hopeful. I don't think it's wishful thinking. I think it's being hopeful that, you know, it will pick up this year. So hopefully it's going to be a little bit easier than in last years.
1: I would say simply that could it be worse than 2023 in terms of quality of financing? I mean, you never know. Uh, things can always be worse. But I, I would say that we, I would expect in by the second part of 2024, there's quite a lot of cash to deploy, so it should be much better. Hoping that inflation and macroeconomics will help, everybody would say we should be cautiously optimistic, because they also have these all investors to manage their own current portfolio, which have had difficult time in 21, 22, and 23. I just hope that everybody will do better due diligence, a better analysis, and investment will be more rational even if they're buying less risk than before. Although there is innovative technology, which will remain attractive, but then it may be financed at more appropriate value. Um, My last point is about clinical data and strong translational science. If you have clinical data and um, clearly science is solid and translation is robust and you can make strategic financial investment. So that's clearly a de-risking clinical data with proven market could clearly crystallize uh, valuable financing for all stakeholders. So better rationale, better financing, a better year and uh, appropriate valuation. But I said, Miguel, it's clearly the MA will continue because there is medical needs and there is portfolio needs for company.
4: Of course, the funding is always a big problem. And I think indeed rare diseases are getting um, more and more attention and probably also because... When you find a therapy for a rare disease, you suddenly see that probably the, the disease is not so rare. So you start to see more and more patients. And this we realize also with, uh, for example, uveal melanoma, uh, which has, uh, is categorized as a rare cancer, but uh, is certainly not very small uh, in terms of uh, patient number. And I think one important trend that probably is emerging is the use of, especially for rare disease, this is really important, of uh, real world evidence data. So the fact that we can build, instead of doing randomized trial against, you know, investigator choice or or placebo, you can really use uh, Synthetic control arm. So basically, a control arm that is made of clinical evidence that are in the real world evidence, so that we can really uh, indeed certain trials can move forward by really giving the right drug to the patient and not a placebo drug uh, for this patient that they have uh, this unmet clinical need. This is one, and certainly then the artificial intelligence probably for this disease will help more the diagnosis because I think for some. Some genetic and uh, rare disease, there are some that are totally unknown and the diagnosis is the starting point for everyone and the moment the disease acquires a name, it's easier you know for the patient, for the family to move forward. and I think for this AI can really help to you know, recognize the symptoms associated with uh, specific genetic uh, modification.